Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best, and what we do to be better under pressure. A world without any pressure would be a dull world, so I do think you'd get better performance out of people, but it's when that pressure tips over to being not useful. Today I'm talking to Paula McKenzie, Managing Director of KFC UK and Ireland responsible for over 28,000 team members, 960 restaurants and 35 franchisees. Before that, Paula spent 20 years transforming food and drink brands for global organisations. Organisations like Diageo, GSK and Innocent Drinks. In our conversation, she shares what she means by reversing out of her day and how she managed the pressure moment of speaking to an audience that was anti the fast food industry. Paula, hello. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk on the podcast, Better Under Pressure. Um, I'm thrilled to be talking to you, actually, for many, many reasons, but partly because I've known you for a while and I knew that you'd be so interesting to talk to on this topic. So maybe we should kick off with me just saying to you the fundamental question of how do you feel about the word pressure and what does it mean to you? Well, firstly, Sarah, you're super kind with those opening words, and we have known each other a while, so it's an absolute delight to be able to do this. So, uh, all good. Um, Gosh, pressure. Um, Actually, the word, you know, does give me a a slight sense of anxiety in the pit of my stomach. So it, it is interesting, I think, no matter who you are, what role you hold, how practiced one is with dealing with pressure, just acknowledging that it exists and... It can have a useful or a non-useful effect. Uh, and actually, even the word has triggers for me, honestly. Like, uh, I can feel it. So it is a thing, and it's good that we get to discuss it. So, uh, yeah, I definitely acknowledge that pressure exists. And it's, I guess, what you do with that. And acknowledging it is, is, a, is a good thing, first up. Yeah, and I, I think what you've already touched on there, which is really interesting, is just how much a word itself can trigger anxiety or can, cri- can trigger a feeling. Um, so maybe, you know, we might decide at the end of this that we actually just have to rebrand the whole, the whole sense of it, call it something else. But um, yeah, I, I get that totally. So when do you remember that feeling? How far back? Can you, can, yeah, can you remember when you first felt that sense of pressure? I think it might, I mean, it definitely stems back to childhood. There's, there's definitely a sense that I'm an eldest child and whether it's, I think it's self-inflicted genuinely. I, I don't think my parents put pressure on me, but there was a sense that I put myself under pressure to want to please them. And I think that's a very normal attribute, especially of oldest children who just really want to make their parents proud. Um And so I definitely can even think, you know, and this is like way back, like primary school, or I wanted to do well at things. um, And I guess I was putting pressure on myself. Um, You know, my parents, we we talk about this now and they were like, you know, you were the one that wanted, you know, if I was nine out of 10 in in a math test, I wanted to get 10 out of 10, nine out of 10. So there was something in driving me, you know, we can go into... But, but that kind of pressure and then I think you build a reputation or I think your identity becomes tied up with it so for me I guess I was then that girl that would get nine out of ten in the math test or would get a top result so then what happens on the day you get six out of ten you know and so that creates pressure 
Whereas actually learning to deal with the six out of 10 probably would have been a really good life lesson. <laughs> how, the, how it got caught up in your identity. That's just so, mm. so interesting, isn't it? Around w- how we play. You know, do we learn pressure from others or do we actually learn internal pressure from ourselves? But if you can remember it way back at school, how did you feel oh. it like it was? I mean, it clearly was a feeling or a sensation that you began to understand quite early on and could make the most of it, it sounds like. Is that right? So I think that's right. I think, you know, rising to the occasion or certain moments mattering more than other moments. Mm -hmm. And you've always taught me this and we can talk, you know, in more adult language about moments that matter. But even if I just take it back to those childhood memories, I think I knew there were certain things, you know, submitting the diary of the school holiday. And that's like primary school. That seemed to matter more than, you know, the regular spelling test or whatever. And I think that just continues as you grow up, you know, I played musical instruments so the bassoon exam matters more than you know recital or practice on a a specific day and so you start to get a sense of okay you've really got to perform in certain moments you know that GCSE that you take or that A-level that you take is going to matter disproportionately and so it is a performance culture some some level of pressure it does matter what result you get in the actual thing and not in the mock um I think that is the life we are, we are born into right now. So acknowledging that, that there'll be pressure in, pressured environments and moments that disproportionately matter is a fact of life. And as a kid, let's stick with you being a kid at the moment. Mm. Can you remember how you recognise the first signs of pressure? Yeah, I mean, gosh, in those early days. I think you always look to your parents for encouragement. Well, I did. And so I think I'd see how they were reacting. You know, you'd look at their faces and you know them so well. You know, are, are you wobbled by this? And they're doing all these parental things of encouragement, encouragement. And um, my father tells a funny story of I was put into a recorder um, recital something in Southampton. And, and the fact it was recorder meant I was really young, like really young. But apparently my parents, very unmusical. They didn't really know what they'd entered me into. And it was only as my father was seeing much older kids than me walk up to play that he realised that I was in a kind of strata or a group probably beyond my capability. And I was just so trusting of them and like this thing. And and he said he's and, and actually for my dad, there's something powerful about your dad saying it in this moment, because maybe I always defaulted to my mother giving me, yeah, yeah it's fine. But he said he felt slightly sick on my behalf. <laughs> he only tells me this years later, whereas I was like, these parents know what they're doing. I'm obviously meant to go up and play. This is all fine. Whereas really I was in a league. I was, I was, a, you know, probably, I don't know, seven or something. And I was with the nine-year-olds and it was just not right. But the fact that I could feel it, I don't know, the pressure, but looking to someone for slight reassurance and um, you need the people in your corner cheering you on, even in, even if it's tough. And even if you're not going to, you know, perform amazingly, there is something I think about just like having having the people that are like you can do this you can do this yeah yeah and and if we now just fast forward a bit to what you're doing now and your leadership mm-hmm. roles that you've had along the way from being you know top of your class as a, as a young girl now you are leading you know some massive transformations and have done for a while now Paula what have you taken from that I mean I'm really interested in what you just said about other people's reactions in your own ability to manage or handle the pressure. How have you taken that into your leadership? Yeah, Um, I think success breeds confidence. The practice of, and I literally mean that, of trying your hardest at something, being reasonably successful, 
and and knowing that that pattern will work for you whatever that is and I think it's a very personal pattern but that's all for me almost the definition of success and confidence in that virtual circle upwards you know if you keep trying really hard and then you do well at it your brain starts to be wired of okay if I put these practices in place and I literally practice I will do well at this thing and so even though something might feel incredibly daunting you know I I know you climb mountains I'm not sure I've climbed that many mountains in my life maybe like you know one volcano but I kind of have an inbuilt that if I put my mind to something and I practiced at it I would be able to do it that inbuilt cycle is in me even if the thing I don't find naturally easy I was trying to pick something that I wouldn't find naturally easy and would be outside my comfort zone but there's an inner confidence of practice hard at it try work do the training plan and you will succeed and and that now I guess 40 years later is my winning formula of I know I could do whatever I put my mind to I actually believe that all humans really kind of could but people somewhere along the lines get that confidence knocked out of them or they knock it out of themselves and 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 yeah yeah so so good to have that landed around you know confidences are like an output (laughs) You know, yeah, you, it is. you experience that you can do something with that feeling that may have felt really daunting, but actually you can still succeed through it. You sort of bank that and then you recognize it. Or it, it sounds like your ability to now recognize it and manage it and be successful through it has been something you've been practicing for a long time. I, I agree with that. I think where I see it is um, in people go a bit wrong, if that makes sense, or a bit wonky, is let's just say their winning formula becomes. I stay up all night, I'm studying, you know, I throw everything, literally everything at this thing, and that's my winning formula. Well, that's not ultimately sustainable. Or what, what's been the knock-on impact into it, your team at work or your family? Or So I think the only thing I think is learning, like if there's a too much to an, to an attribute or a behavior that's a winning formula. You know, if it's too much, then are you going to, you know, 27 is one thing. Are you going to burn out by the time you're 40? Or what might have been, you know, you were a trainee lawyer and that was great to work through the night every night to deliver the deliverable. But how sustainable is that, honestly? And what leadership shadow are you setting? And, and, and. So there's definitely something about confidence built on non-sustainable winning formulas, I think, that you have to redress. And, and this is where, I don't know, coaching. And I think, so one of my, one of the things that I used to do, and I can talk, this is when I met you, I think back in my you know, 27, 30 year old kind of state was I worried too much about stuff. Honestly, one of my winning traits in a way was if I worried about everything that could go wrong. And I grew up in a finance, for your listeners that don't know that I grew up in a finance kind of capacity, then I would have pre-thought everything that could go wrong and therefore probably have, you know, noted it in some way or, or modeled that in some way worrying at that level is not useful honestly like just constantly thinking about things that could go wrong or just even worrying about your own personal life constantly um and I remember I met a coach through the London Business School that said to me if you worry this much at 27 you literally will have a nervous breakdown by the time you're 40 and and those words kind of hit me quite hard because I had to find a more constructive way to be successful (laughs) Yeah. And how did you do that? I think that's such an interesting point that, you know, we, what, what may work for us at a certain time. And, you know, I speak to a lot of people, you know, have got this formula that has fitted and worked well with them for, for them, say, you know, at a particular period of their life and they've continued it and it hasn't suddenly worked or it's needed to be reset or it's needed to be revamped. How did you notice that what you were doing 
wasn't as useful to you any longer or it needed a tweak yeah a major reset in order to be able to sustain the the momentum that you talk about I think at that point I could probably feel like how draining it was if that makes sense and if you get bigger responsibilities or you have to deliver through more and more people you know having to worry about everyone's worries or whatever it's just not sustainable and maybe I was just almost like drowning metaphorically in in that um, the tools and techniques just to try and turn this into something really useful that people listening can do something with was the worry diary, which is in really simple terms, note the worry that you have, note the context that the worry typically comes up in. Is it a certain meeting? Is it a certain group of people? Is it a certain time in the month? Is it, you know, just what about it? And then, and then the third column is write down the worst that can happen. Like literally, if that worry came true, what's the worst that can happen? And soon, not only do you spot patterns if there's a certain trigger around people or a meeting or situation that means you're more likely to be worried and then you can do things to like mitigate that but it also teaches you that after a while the worst that can happen is go with it so awful or so unlikely or just it's just one of those black moments that life might be your way but you worry it's never going to actually move its existence most of the stuff you're worried about let's just say I'm worried I'm going to lose my job chance are it won't happen and chance are if it did there's things that you would put in place to go find another job or whatever that it's not as bad as you think and I think your brain can kind of catastrophize but when you've got it written down you can just see the the logical okay it's really unlikely but if I if that did happen here's what I do um so anyway that really helps mitigate the worrying yeah so sort of almost getting it out of your head and mm. giving it a bit of distance on a piece of paper so that you could look more objectively at what it is that you're saying about the situation gave you I think so. choice? I think it just forced through to end its end to its actual conclusion, the worry, rather than just allowing the worry to just, it's almost very self-indulgent, wallow and take up brain space and be the thing that's causing the stress okay, okay, worry, we're going to chase you down. <laughs> what does that actually mean? Yeah. And when you actually kind of confront it as its final point, you're like, all right, that's not good. You know, come on, man. Like, so it's, it's like the little voice on your shoulder, just constantly saying mean things. You have to find a way to like, shut it up. What Paul is demonstrating here is a great way to separate ourselves from a feeling by saying, Okay, worry, we're going to chase you down. Paul is choosing how she's going to manage it rather than it manage her. Making the worry a third party gives her control. This reminds me of the inspiring Mo Gordat and his formula for happiness. He gives his brain a name, Becky, and regularly chooses whether what Becky is telling him is useful or not. He chooses. It's worth experimenting with ways to buy you a moment of choice when a thought is getting in the way of you being your best, particularly under pressure. And as Paula says, it's very individual. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as it works for you. Back to Paula. When we met, and I was, what, in my early 30s, and this little voice on my shoulder would always say, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, other people can do this better than you, blah, blah, blah. Well in that third person really mean but when I reframed it as you help me and I'm just giving away your trade secrets here but like you know I don't know what I'm talking about well I don't believe that no I do know what I'm talking about and so suddenly reframed in the first person really shut the little voice up because it's just not true yeah if you're you've obviously honed this quite intentionally through quite a few years um 
So now you find yourself having to lead others. Mm. And one of the things that I have conversations with leaders quite a lot about is, you know, this is, this to me is not a pressure situation. And yet the people that they are leading are feeling it as very pressurized or are feeling it in some way or another. And how do you help people feel their agency with pressure? Mm. I think you make a really good point, just so you know, because thank you for your kind words. But sometimes I think it doesn't matter how accomplished you are or whatever, like you just have to keep going because I still think that I can inadvertently put pressure onto the people who work for me. And it's actually one of the biggest things that I probably am working on right now. And I mean that 100% genuinely. By that I mean is almost vicariously people sense the pressure that you put on yourself. Well, this is my, this is my incarnation of it. And that in turn, because they don't want to let me down, and it can be a very personal, you know, relationship wise, which is, I want to deliver for this lady that I like working for, that actually just puts pressure on themselves. And so that for me is my biggest development point, not that I go around heaping pressure on people, but just the mere act of not wanting to let me down, people put pressure on themselves. And to use your useful word, you know, where that's useful, okay, but where it's not getting the best out of them or their team or whatever, that's just really not useful. So I have to watch how much inadvertently things are signposting, putting pressure on people. Um, And so that comes, you're asking me like, how do I watch for it or what do I do? The most, well, the most effective thing I try to do is signpost, is, is to say in my language, context around everything, is it urgent, is it not urgent? I'm just noodling, like shooting the breeze. There's no action required. Um, here's, you know, I'm not asking you to do this or deliver this, you know, like, or let's take six months to decide, not just six weeks. Or, you know, I really try and signpost to just deflate or remove pressure from the situation. I'm not saying that's always successful, but it's a technique that I have found does, you know, take take the, <laughs> the heightened state out of things. Um, so that when it really needs a heightened state, it is there, but not unnecessarily so, because otherwise all my words have equal weight, especially on Zoom sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so it's trying to deflate the balloons that are artificially inflating <laughs> how yeah. I look at it. And because you're the leaders, I think the more senior you get, the more your words carry weight. You stop sometimes being go with it, Paula, the teammate that can just kick the ball around quite in the same way, because suddenly you are Paula, the MD, the CEO or whatever. And if you said, wouldn't this wall look nice blue? Suddenly it's blue. Um, whereas really you were just cogitating. Yeah. So you have to really, really intentionally signpost. That's great advice. And 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 it and it requires you to really be um, aware of what's in front of you as well. But I think this is what's so interesting about the way we're communicating virtually all the time now. You have these tiles and you have the sort of the top part of the human body, you know, center focus. And so you can read all sorts of uh, what I would call leakages around how people are hearing or receiving um, messages, information, comments, etc. And it requires, I think what you're saying here, which is so helpful, is it requires a leader to be super aware and outside of themselves looking out to pick up these signals so that you can then decide how you choose to manage them yeah I agree with you entirely and like so much so that if you think you've said something and it's inadvertently or being construed another way you only have sometimes seconds to make a judgment to say actually I'm going to call that and address it quite quickly and I can't remember if it was you that gave me this advice or somebody else but 
um, make the implicit explicit. So suddenly, whatever implicit you think is bouncing around, I just call it, um, even if actually sometimes it's somebody else's body language, if that makes sense. But in a, I try and do it in the least confrontational, most neutral way I can to go, okay, I can tell that that just didn't sit well with you. So let's just, let's talk, you know, and actually I have to sometimes do that in groups to go, okay, I feel like everyone is thinking we just have to cut cost here. So let me just go again on what I actually mean. You know, and you only have a, you have a, sec, a split second, I think as a leader to either like the meeting's gonna end and it's all just gonna do its natural thing, or actually it's worth the split second and you going again on what you think the implicit and making it explicit. And it's so powerful, it's actually, Unarming, unnerving for a group. They're like, shit, she just called it. Well, you know, the energy that was bouncing around. And suddenly you can do something with it rather than it just leave on that basis. What do you think that what do you think that opens up then when someone like is brave enough to to sort of call the pressure that you think you're seeing or you're assuming you're seeing or you're feeling? What do you think that then allows to happen? I think it gives a I think it levels the playing field somehow or it gives a true space for someone to go okay well yeah I've got something to say on that um or oh wow she did acknowledge it you know she yes that's how we've all been feeling and and I just think it it gives permission and some you know somebody might speak up then they might come back to somebody I think they go away I mean you can't almost help and I don't care what people talk about you know, outside in different rooms or whatever. But I think you can only be true to yourself and it helps just give a sense of the real conversation that you're trying to have. Um, yeah, and what's going do, on. Do you share, Paula, when you are feeling pressure with your, with your team, with your colleagues? It, what, how open are you about that? I think I do. Um, probably not as much as I probably should because... Um, I've definitely had this feedback over the years. Please ask us for help more, you know. Um, and I think rightly so, it's the right kind of courageous open leader that does ask for help too, that it's a two-way thing. And the, I remember the first few years of um, being an MD, definitely I felt like there was an element of, you know, I had to be a certain way, not even be, but just like, you know, the role needed me to be that person. And then the more I got into just letting my guard down and just being my authentic you know, some good days are better than others. And let me tell you what I've been rolling with this week or going on at home or whatever. People loved it. They were much more happy in a way to work for the authentic Paula than the polished Paula. I'm trying to find, you know, you know, that's just not real. They know that I can do that, but they'd like to also know what's getting me down a bit sometimes or whatever. And, and then it becomes a more trusting, authentic both ways. I'm so interested in this. Um this balance between authenticity and just yeah. pretending almost sometimes, you know what I mean? I think mm. because I know that, you know, as an, when in my early days of being a teacher in quite challenging uh, sort of classrooms, if I had been truly authentic, Paula, about some of the, how I was feeling sometimes, it would have probably scared the living daylights out of them, or at least <laughs> I'd have lost all credibility in front of yeah. those 30 uh, teenagers and I and, and so sometimes I just had to convince myself so I could convince them that I was okay in that classroom and I learned that actually that balance of just sometimes just acting as if I'm confident even though I'm not deeply feeling it 
was enough for me to start to feel confident. And I, I'm really interested in when does, you know, as a leader, when does true or honesty become mm. a bit scary for people that you're leading? And when actually is it hugely um, helpful opening, you know, sharing? Yeah. Gives them permission to, to acknowledge it, it's, it's, it, it seems like it's quite a fine balance sometimes. I agree with you. I think that's the adeptness of picking the moments, if that makes sense. That if it's just my, call it eight direct reports, that's probably absolutely fine. You know, in, a, in certain leadership team meetings, because we're almost like a family, but other leadership team meeting moments, it needs me to be a certain way, even if I don't feel that way. But then let me just take it to its more nth degree. You know, if I'm speaking in front of 1,400 people, but I'm not feeling it that day. That's kind of not cool. I need to go out there and give it whatever it needs and me authentically going, you know what? I woke up this morning. I wasn't really feeling like this. That's not cool. You know, like, so the moments that matter, I think it's identifying the moments that matter or when it's useful to be authentic, like, oh, today has been difficult, you know, um, and just sharing that. That's, I think it's choosing the moment. So all I would yeah. say is there is definitely room for both, but you have taught me that that whole point of, trying a behavior, try acting a certain way, and then you feel it's part of your armory because you realize there is an authentic connection with it. I agree with you, but do what, did I feel it? Like the first time I walked out in front of 1400 people, I could barely get on the stage, honestly, yeah. but that's not useful. You see certain speakers who do it in that moment and then share all that. And it actually undermines how fabulous they're about to be. Yes, yes, I agree. It's mm. such a fine line. Well, mm. that's a great segue into please share your greatest pressure moment, or at least one of them? You know, in the last five years, professionally, I think the comeback from our 2018, which was when, you know, we famously ran out of chicken in the UK, yes. um, had to close, you know, nearly 700 restaurants or whatever. And I think it's, it's personal pressure as well. The pressure I put back on myself or to the organisation um, to, to come back from that, which was always going to be a, a long burn. You know, it was not like, oh, we're just going to bounce back next month. Thank you very much. But there was something in that. I think when you're in a situation that you feel like this is this is not good. Like, I mean, there's, you know, unequivocally not good. Um, but I put a real pressure on myself as well as the organisation. And I don't, I now look back and think, God, did I put too much pressure on the organisation? But there was a real sense of the only way to come back from a down is to create an up. And we are going to work to our damnedest to create that up. It's going to take us a while, but we will get there. Um, and, and now I'm speaking, you know, it's 2021 and we really, really have. And we actually, we, we got there by 2020. Um, but that's pressure. That genuinely is business performance pressure. That's results. That's, you know, all of that without necessarily absolute resoluteness of how you're going to do it. But just the inbuilt desire creates pressure. So I think that that one over, I mean, that's a long time, two years to kind of turn something yeah. around. If I take something that's just in-moment pressure, the biggest one I've had in the last probably two months or so was speaking at a, you know, at a youth panel. Well, sorry, it's, you know, so 150 people that are really anti the fast food industry where I bowl up by myself. It's an evening do. I, I probably don't realise quite what I've let myself in for mm. without any kind of cheerleaders, champions, anything. And I'm like, oh, wow, OK, <laughs> I'm going to have to, you know, in a really authentic way, 
and not play defensively, but just speak my truth about this isn't as just black and white as you might think to 150 people that are literally pitchfork wielding, you know, probably in the half hour before I was just like, oh my goodness, like I've never done anything like this. This is going to be tough. This is really going to be tough. Um, and, and, you know, looking back at how I handled it, which was you would you ostensibly would read super confident. My goodness. Wow. But that that channel where that came from was, well, firstly, I'm not letting down the team of people that have fielded with me here this evening, if that makes sense. I'm not letting down a whole organization that has done a ton of responsible good work, you know, whether it's higher well, you know, welfare chickens, pecking order awards, there's a ton of substance, which is why I'm here. So this audience is going to hear this, but in a way that I can make it as, you know, as, as I am open, there's a two way dialogue here. I am here all evening. So please come grab me and, you know, we can talk about this stuff. It's not as clear cut as the headlines would have you believe. Anyway, that energy was the one that got me out of the chair up to the front with the microphone and was like, please, let's talk about this. This is good. Um, but but for the half hour, 45 minutes before, I was like, oh, my God, what the hell? Because <laughs> so- you know what, Paul, what I love about that story is you just, you began it by saying, you know, I was on my own. I had no I had no cheerleaders. But actually what you did mentally is you called your cheerleaders up. That's right. You know, the, these people that have been working really hard for the last two, two years, or I'm doing it for this right. person, I'm doing it for that person. You sort of, I suddenly, when you were talking the story, saw all of these people suddenly appearing around you, you know, yep, metaphorically. Yeah. Isn't that amazing that you can do that? The human brain can do that. So that's, and, and then if you take it like slightly, you know, alive or dead or anything, you could summon up your cheerleaders in your head. Couldn't you? You oh, know, I you kind that. of can. I know. And I tell you what I've loved similarly is Brene's Brown. She has like the brain train, which is, you know, you can have like 10 carriages in each. Who is on your brain train or who is your cheerleaders, you know, that are there giving when you need it. And sometimes they won't be there in person. Yeah. That and that's such a skill. I think I think that is a practice, isn't it? To, to imagine those people there when they're not. I mean, another person might well have walked into that situation and thought, I am completely alone. I don't stand a cat in hell's chance uh, persuading this group of people. They're out, you know, you can, you can imagine the sort of inner dialogue that mm. might create. But, but what I'm interested in as I talk to you is I think this, you have this interesting dynamic about actually being very brutally honest about the situation mm. so that you can wake your system up to anticipating the potential um, okay. challenge of the situation, right? I mean, the reality mm. of the challenge, then you very quickly bring in right next to it, okay, so this is how I'm gonna do it. But it's, it's not like you're kidding yourself that it's not as challenging or as potentially difficult. Um, yeah. And I, I really like what you're describing there around, you know, how, Let's be honest, you know, this isn't, it's not about kidding yourself. It's about actually anticipating no. to be able to mitigate it is what I'm hearing. Well, you've described me how a lot of people describe me. So therefore I, I take it, you know, which is pragmatic. There's a deep sense of, and people say, wow, my, my honesty is disarming sometimes. Or, and I think I do it to myself, which is an honest assessment quickly of what's going on here mm-hmm. in that situation as we, just, you know, this is bad, as in I feel this is bad for these reasons, but it's a quick pragmatic, but then it's immediately into, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Um, And even how we handled or how I handled, you know, the distribution crisis of 2011 is, this is not good. This is really not good. Okay, 
so what are we going to do you know yeah. <laughs> and what am I going to do and what are we going to do and but I think kid well for me kidding myself or lulling myself as into oh this presentation will be a walk in the park doesn't help me do a good job of it so I don't know if it does for anyone but it doesn't work for me yeah I mean I how how do you what would be what would you offer because I know that I can sometimes and certainly you know have done for more time than I would really enjoy um, imagining what could go wrong and I can sometimes unhelpfully get myself into that reality and therefore I've done that so well <laughs> that it's hard to then do that second bit that you've just described so it's, okay what can we do you know what what's the solution here mm -hmm. how do you shift from being really brutally honest about the challenge into solution and what I can do are you aware of how you do that not really because I guess I just feel that if we do our best like dispassionate assessment okay this is what's going on you've got to be really clear I think on what you're solving for because otherwise you know any approach will do that so I really think like the more you can ascertain what actually is going wrong if there is something going wrong then the more precise you can be on your answer about what you're going to do about it um but I know that like I feel like to your point of like you, you're very clear on the downside scenario well just get equally clear or put as much thought and energy into some upside scenario this this is going to go either one or two ways <laughs> you know we'd all much rather it goes the positive way so that's where we need to focus of like what can get us out of this or what combination of things can get out or, or and sometimes even if you don't know taking a first step in the right direction that's all we did actually and I stand by that because people keep going to me but we don't know the plan I'm like no, neither do I, honestly. But I know that this step feels like it's in the right direction. And before you know it, 50 of those steps and then 250 of those steps and you literally get out the tunnel. Um, yeah. Breaking the elephant. I'm famous at work for saying eat the elephant in small chunks. Yeah. Eat, start eating. Catastrophizing or paralysis of just not starting to eat the elephant doesn't help anyone. So let's start. And before you know it, starting is over. Even if it takes five years, that's what's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, experiment, just have get, get going on something. Get going. So I guess that snaps me out of the, oh gosh, I've made the downside scenario so real to me. It just, yeah. Yeah, I don't like stress. So I think I do things to mitigate stress. I don't want to think about this more, any of the bad yeah. stuff. Mm. Yeah. Does the, um, sometimes in these conversations, um, your sort of the physiology or the sort of your body the role of your body in this shift can play a huge part for many, many people that I talk to. And actually it really does for me. Mm. It sounds from what you're describing at being quite a dialogue with oneself that mm -hmm. you're describing. Just the physical, are you aware of anything that you do physically to give yourself that shift when you're in pressure? Well, I, I mean, I think we all know physiological body triggers about you know good things and bad things so while I was 16 to 18 and putting too much pressure and quite miserable I suffered from irritable bowel syndrome right which is just a really like distended painful digestive system because of stress pure stress so you know your body responding badly to stress is a real thing that's you know not good and especially if it's self-inflicted you know there's and I said this to you before you know if there's terrible things that are going to happen in life that will happen you know let's try not to create things that are yeah 
you know, having such a negative effect. But I definitely um, go with it, you know, gut feel, reactions to stuff. I, I self-check that stuff, good or bad. You know, even if I see something and I hate it as it work, that's, that's not what you're going to see because that's not useful. You know, even if I'm like, and also if I suspend judgment for a bit longer, maybe I won't hate it. That's just almost don't trust sometimes the first thing that you think or come through or, but I have, and those who know me well at work know I have like learnt body language things that I do that actually help me. Um, I put my fingers together like this um, and just the pressure of feeling like the fingers against each other. It just gives me thinking time, if that makes sense, or just a presence of, okay. And I'll, sometimes I even breathe. I can actually feel like, you know, and, the, and, and Meg, my CMO would also be like, oh my God, she's doing the fingers thing. <laughs> you know? And it's not really that. It's just in heightened situations, it's like it's giving me thinking time. I am very grounded at one. My fingers are together and I will take my time to say my next comment and I will take time. So I think this is what I've learned over time. The more heightened a situation, the slower I go. You can tell I'm a fast paced person, but not in real, real like crises, pressure points. I go slower because it's so important, if that makes yeah. sense. And yeah. what I, I love about what you shared there is your modeling of how you do it. So, you know, you've got your team recognizing, oh, Paula's got her fingers together and she's slowing down. That means yeah. you know, this, this really matters. But I yeah. think sometimes we're not, we could be so much more honest about our practices to deal with pressure so mm -hmm. that the people that are working with us and around us can find out what it is, what their practice is, or that it doesn't just come. Right. Sometimes I think it's an unhelpful myth that you're either born to deal with pressure um, better than somebody else. And actually what you're describing so beautifully here is it's a bit of a craft. It's understanding totally. over your life, what you choose to do with it. Um, and you're now I showing totally it and modeling it. But it's, and I've said this to you, it's as personal as the person that we're all individual, you know, what works for me might not work, but you take the bits of everything of different practices that work for you. And I need a bit of it all, you know, if something you know is going to be tough, a certain meeting, mantras, what are you saying to yourself on the way to work or in the car? And what have you role played slightly in your head, all eventualities of what could happen? Yeah. And are you clear on what you might do in, in one of the really tough ones? Do you know? Like, I know what I would do to close a meeting and go, this is not constructive. This meeting is over till we can continue I know what I, I know that that point and I've actually role played it in my head and I think those things give you confidence rather than feeling like this whole thing is out of control no it's not you are totally in control you can choose to walk out of a meeting end a meeting etc etc and yeah. and those things all I would say is they're practice they're pre-thought it's a it's a state I can't remember if again if you, you help me with this there's certain things like a practice of when I walk over the threshold okay I don't go into the office so much but like what, what mantle, what hat, what cloak, how do you want to express it? It's up to you. But like at the point you're crossing the lift threshold, yes. for me, it's the lift, it's funny. But then I'm here, I know what I'm here to do. This is the focus, this is what we're about. They're all helpful, it is helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yes, and it might sound yeah. slightly crazy, you know, like very odd to do these sorts of things, but I agree with you. I mean, I've had so many conversations with people who've got extraordinary interesting and fun rituals that they do to shift from one state to another and, and you, as you say it's what works for you that makes makes That's it right. what what else do you do to help you get a sense of 
perspective in pressure because that's what's radiated out through the whole of this conversation is your ability yeah. to just manage it is there anything else that you could share I wish you could, I wish you could see into my little office set up here because I do I it's like a menagerie or there's trinkets and, and all sorts of things around that people have either written for me have said to me have given me and I the one I was just pulling up was um this one actually which is Natasha of Natasha's Law which her parents gave to me there is a lot of words inside this card that are deeply meaningful to me you can see how much text yes which talks to me about their journey since losing their daughter um about how they are trying to correct for in society food allergies so that no one ever has to die from eating food that's incorrectly labeled and it is their life's work until they meet their daughter again um and just having something like that that really does connect me so deeply with how they found meaning in their life and I find meaning in my life in different ways but we we're only on this planet for a certain number of years a yeah. hundred if we're lucky you know a hundred if we're lucky and what we choose to do with that um you really do have to think about this stuff I think um in terms of how are you making yourself proud with what you do each day and when you put your work you pick it up and you put it down but this you see I have these kind of things because it really matters to me and sometimes when things aren't going well I think I will just look at them yeah and it really centers me again of like what really matters yeah gosh I love that oh <laughs> yeah and just having it there as a physical um trigger around you oh I love that idea I sort of want to turn the camera around so I can see all the other little trinkets you've got in there there's That's all sorts of stuff here you know yeah. there's um cards that I've been given that one says women with attitude um there's, there's little positive reinforcing statements that people can't see off camera I mean this was Fantastic. today's don't just let things happen make them happen you know but it, yeah. it really does help me all this stuff yeah yeah you've shared lots of things in this um Paula which have been gosh invaluable I think but if I'm asking all my guests that if there were two pieces of advice that you could pay forward to anyone listening to this who would like to be better under pressure uh, what would your two pieces of advice be um, what would your first mm. one be out if you had to put money against your top number one piece of advice what would it be I think just to build on one that I was almost just talking about how you you know um start the day, put on the mantle, put on the hat, etc. One that I've learned too late that I would really, well not too late, later on, I wish I'd learned as strongly, that would be my life advice or pay it forward because I think it doesn't get talked about enough, is how you do, how you reverse out of all those things. By that I mean the end of the day practice. <laughs> By that I mean take off the mantle, put down your work, you know, I, this is not Paula McKenzie TM, you know, um, Glennon Doyle talks about this, but it's been yes. one of the most helpful things for me. If you are naturally high on accountability, pick up stuff, learn to put it down. And so I think that's, and the reason it links to the pressure question is it takes the pressure off. It's like, you've done as much as you can do for today. If that was your last day on earth, you wouldn't be here to continue. So at some point just freaking put it down. Yes. Uh, don't carry it in your head at night and pick it back up again with the same vigor, but put it down with the same vigor. So the life lesson is put your work down, put the mental load down. You used to have to teach me, Paula, what do you do on a Sunday? OK, what do you do on a Sunday by the time it's like three o'clock? Sit down for a couple of hours. <laughs> so there's something about the state of relax or putting stuff down that I would say is pressure relieving, because when you then pick the pressure up, 
you're more ready to. Yeah. So Great. yes, and that's really honoring your own recovery, isn't it? And your own it really is. Yeah. Your own sense of um fuel. And what would be the second piece of advice that you'd pay forward? I think practice. I know um, just practice. Um, definitely an awareness of pressure and when it comes and how you feel, or but play with a few things about what how you want to respond to it. There is no, it's not a precise science, it's very personal. And so just practice. Um, you know, you can almost create artificial pressure if there isn't none. You know, you can volunteer to go whatever you find slightly more pressurized, go speak at a industry body thing or put yourself out your comfort zone in some way sometimes some people hate phone calls it's funny what is different pressure for different people but then practice with a few things just be really intentional and then work out what works for you because it's by working out what works for you that I've definitely developed probably five things that I could do to take pressure out of a situation but what might work for me is different to what might work for um, somebody else so I would say work with a coach that coach can be a trusted friend yeah. colleague and practice some things because genuinely you'll be surprised what works for you. Yeah. Do yeah. you talk openly about this sort of stuff with your team and the people you lead? I do. And it's interesting. Some people struggle to begin with to let their guard down to, to acknowledge. They just want to be like, oh, no, I don't, you know, I'm fine. I, I could just get on this stage tomorrow and I could just do this. And I'm like, So almost their confidence is, is like armour or something, you know. Um, but the more you get into it, authentic, well, I find one-to-one -one, people slightly let their guard down and they do want to talk about it and they are interested, um, genuinely, male and female. And so, yes, I do, because I think it's important. And I, I get, you know, Usain Bolt or whatever, he may be a naturally good runner, I'm sure he is, but he has refined that skill. And yes, he, he pulls off his, you know, cheeky, chappy, effortless, I just, you know, don't sleep, eat whatever I want and saunter and run the gold medal world record. You know, I would say BS, as in <laughs> he gives off. That's all part of his charm. That athlete is practicing. He is practicing. He has a whole support structure of physio, training regimes, nutritionists, you know. So it's just take it for what it is, is he does his his thing very well world-class well what's your equivalent type thing and you, you've helped me see that you know and so it doesn't matter if you give off the effortless oh I just rock up and do this but it will take all that stuff to get you to the Olympic final to do your thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. rehearse yeah. spontaneity yes exactly <laughs> and as a mother yeah Taylor, yeah you know you talked you began this conversation by talking about the, the role your parents had in terms of helping you manage pressure, almost like their encouragement and their sense of confidence in you was what you caught. It became a bit contagious, it sounded, in the way that you described it. What have you learned from that and how have you, how have you parented pressure in your children? I do think it's hard being a parent. Uh, there's something about just being the parent that sometimes I feel like your almost child doesn't want to accept the advice or the, the thoughts that you're giving. But I mean, that's just, every generation does that to the parents. Um, I try and remind them that it doesn't matter that much, if that makes sense, that ultimately I love them no matter what, that even if they don't do as well as they want to do for themselves, it's okay. You know, life will continue and there'll be another day and anything is retrievable ultimately. And 
you know, I and my children aren't yet, you know, go with at university age or anything like that, where they've been really bitterly disappointed that they didn't um, get into something or whatever. But, you know, a small example. So um, Rufus, I could tell he's nine, really wanted to be in Matilda the play, but he couldn't quite summon the confidence to audition. Um, but that's OK, you know. And so we talked about it afterwards when all his friends are in it and he's singing along. He's still, you can tell, really, I think, do you regret slightly that you didn't audition? And then I'm like, okay, so can you see that next time when mommy or daddy is saying to you, I think you would like to do this thing only because we think you genuinely would, or do you think you'll remember the feeling that like you wished you had, even though it's really scary to do the thing, to do the audition. And I'm not sure that he will, honestly, but all I'm trying to do as the parent is help him join the dots, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so I don't mind whether he's, it? he's so hard. <laughs> so hard. Because they don't want to hear that from you. <laughs> no. Necessarily. But I tell you what I do do, which I think my parents did, is I try and pick things that they naturally do do. So Rufus is a phenomenal cheerleader of others. And maybe like, maybe the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but he really does play that role for his friends and in his football team. He's so encouraging of others. And so I try and praise the the specific rather than just you know I'll be like Rufus you are such an amazing cheerleader of your friends and team it's it's just really wonderful to see and I try and be specific in my kind of compliment or praise so that they can try and see that in themselves that's something I do yeah and I'm sure you do that as a leader as well with your with your team Paula thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your little um gems of of uh, advice and I hope that um, there are people listening to this who will take at least one thing that they can practice because I I, mean, I suppose I'd really like to finish with do you believe in the phrase we can be better under pressure? I think an element of pressure can add to performance definitely and performance I mean actual deliverer like there is some useful pressure right in knowing this is the moment and even though that adrenaline is coursing through your body it will mean that you perform better so I think in a world without any pressure would be a dull world so I do think you'd get better performance out of people but it's when that pressure tips over to being not useful thank you you're welcome so much there were so many nuggets of gold in this conversation with Paula around how she manages pressure putting down the mental load at the end of a day knowing when a winning formula isn't anymore, summoning up your cheerleaders dead or alive, creating physical habits to buy yourself time. But the one that really struck a chord with me was her practice of having meaningful triggers around her to connect to when she's feeling under pressure. Having a fast way of connecting to the bigger purpose or why this pressure matters can ultimately pull us out of dwelling on the pressure and what might go wrong and lift us up to why it matters and why it's worth persevering. Having physical triggers around you, with you, on you, that can instantaneously connect you to something meaningful can make a big difference. For example, I have a ring on my right hand with an inscription, which as soon as I touch it, reminds me that I have the resources I need and that I can manage the pressure I'm under. Thank you, Paula. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne-Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method. Alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact 
or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, goodbye.